Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me today on a cool autumn day in the capital on the programme is Mike Newell, sales director at iSumo Limited. iSumo is a company which designs, builds and supports complex network infrastructures that deliver the security, scalability and availability that clients and their users demand. Mike, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Good to be here. Likewise, real pleasure to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, The whole reason we're here is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But rather than dive straight into that subject, I feel it's appropriate that we start with the ongoing COVID-19 situation, simply because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. Um, For yourselves at iSumo, just to what extent it affected you and your operations, however? Well, what it's actually done is uh, a lot of businesses have seen a drop, a decline in revenues uh, up to 40%. Uh, so they're having challenges uh, trying to manage on, on, on 40% less revenue coming in, uh, which, which, which will result in uh, the awkward situation of redundancies. Uh, so companies are looking to lay people off. Uh, the furlough has helped. It has, it has helped considerably. But that's going to come to an end at the end of this month, which means there's uh, business leaders are in difficult decisions as as to whom they take back uh, from from furlough because they won't be able to afford to 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 uh, hit the bill. There's a new furlough coming out, a new version of furlough is coming out, but it's not as good as the original. So there's there's challenges there for for businesses all across the UK. And what do you see the long-term impact of this lockdown period being on your industry specifically? Well, uh, people have changed the way they work. Uh, we should, you know, working from home. So uh, a lot of people are now, that would, that would normally be travelling on the tube and going in the office and are working from home. So the way they work has changed. Uh, the way you interact with people, the employees, colleagues has changed as well. And uh, it's a lot of isolation. Uh, a lot of uh, the people that I speak to a lot of the customers and their staff that I speak to are telling me that their staff feel a bit isolated. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to come up with innovative ways of how to keep everyone engaged, either on a Zoom, a Zoom call or some sort of joy call where everyone's on mm. the call and just trying to keep the communication lines open. And how has it been adapting to leading from a distance and doing everything in that remote way? Because... For some people, sort of getting used to that lack of face-to-face contact has been a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's it, it's 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 also bad for businesses as well. So, so salespeople going out, well, traditionally they'll actually take their car and they'll drive to a, to a customer site and have that face-to-face meeting. It's all done on Zoom now, so everything's done uh, using our uh, you know online communications. Which are which is good in one way, the fact that you could do more of them in a day, so it makes the salesperson more productive. But you don't really get that personal that personal relationship. It's very hard to do that over over a video call. 
It is. I think there are some sort of nuances of face-to-face contact that you can't really replicate over um, technological means. I think that's absolutely right. And Absolutely. It, mm. and, and also, if you are, are not away with using uh, the, uh, the communication the communications you're using, are you using Zoom? And if you're not very good at using it, then you can actually be, be uh, in, in a back foot where, where you're now under pressure. Because it's all about uh, impressions. And if you can't use the equipment that you're mm-hmm. given, that you've provided, it can lead to a more harder sales cycle. And you can actually lose a sale just by not being able to operate Zoom. Mm. It can, absolutely. So it does have its uh, downsides, uh, for sure. And even when we sort of, say, fast forward one or two years' time, when hopefully by then COVID-19 is no longer an issue and we do have a working vaccine, do you think we'll see our working practices return as they were in vogue so everybody will be back in the office for most of the week? Or can you see there being more of a sort of hybrid system where there is a shift towards remote working, but we still have that human contact within an office space maybe once or twice? Absolutely. I mean, what I, how I see it is uh, it's going to be more flexible working. So you will go to the office, but you won't have a desk like you had before. There'll be hot desks. There'll be a series of hot desks where you just uh, park up sit down, do your work, and then off you go. So it's going to be a combination of working from home and working in the office, but it's going to be very flexible because a lot of the business leaders have seen the benefits of, of, of uh, allowing their staff to work, work to work from home. They become more, they can become more productive because mm. you, you get rid of that travel time there and back. So you've got an, hour, an average journey is about 45 minutes to an hour getting into the office and back. So you've got two hours that extra work that you can do in that day. So the, the bosses see the benefit of uh, allowing people to flexible, flexible, flexible working. Certainly the work-life balance is going to be at the heart of that uh, debate about working practices going forward from here. And it's really thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the national limelight, hasn't it, this? Not just because of the um, anxiety over our health and um, our employment status, but also um, the um, social isolation element of the uh, the lockdown. And that goes for not just, of course, the benefits of sort of working uh, from home and being around family and being able to sort of establish a better balance, but also the lack of social contact with colleagues in um, a common workplace as well. So the sides to both arguments to be had there on the mental health side of things. But with regards to that sort of uh, issue around well-being, just how important is mental health in leadership for you, Mike, both in terms of safeguarding that of the people around you, but also your own as well? Yeah, I think it's very important, and uh, and I think fitness and going out, getting exercise, and 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 having some sort of activity uh, is really important to, to to help with that. Because if you're stuck in in your, in your home all day, you're in your house twenty four hours a day. You're working from home. You're actually in your at home, and you don't get a chance to go out. So going out, even if it's going out for an hour to go to the gym, if you can't if you can't afford a gym or you're not a gym member, then going for a walk, going for a jog. Outside activities, outside outside exercise, that's really important. And it gives you that, you know, that fresh air and I think mm. it's really important to your mental health. 
It is hugely important. And from a leader's point of view as well, it's also equally important to just take a step back sometimes and to take stock because in the hectic world of running a business, even in the everyday environment, it can be very difficult and mentally taxing, let alone at a time such as this where leaders are having to really step up and be beacons of sort of inspiration, motivation and reassurance as well amid all of the anxiety. And it can sometimes just get a little bit too much, can't it? People are looking to you for inspiration constantly, but there's always that question of where I can look at the top of the tree. And that's a whole nother issue as well. Absolutely. And I think it's important to to reach out to your staff and let them know that you're you're available for a chat. And, you know, on a personal level or on a professional level, you're there to listen to them. And, and sometimes you just need someone to listen to. You know, you can offload a lot of your stress and anxiety just by talking to someone. You certainly can. Um, and you've, of course, spent a great deal of time working in business uh, now uh, yourself, Mike. Um, but just yeah. to shift focus ever so slightly, if you could go back to sort of before you got involved in uh, your current role at ISUMO and indeed before you took your first steps in the corporate world, with all of the knowledge that you sort of have under your belt now, is there anything that you would do differently if you could go back to earlier in your career? Yes, I, I, would, I would have been an actor. <laughs> I wouldn't have been involved with, uh, with uh, you know, sales or uh, IT and technology. I would, have been, I would love to be an actor. That's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to go out and, and uh, you know, getting being part of a, being a film and, uh, you know, even, even like, a, like, you know, like Coronation Street or EastEnders mm. or anything like that. Acting is what I would have done if I could. If I really could. If I really wanted to, but I just couldn't. I was no good. I'm not saying I'm no good at it, but I still mm. get there. I didn't get the opportunity, so... Uh, that's why I'm probably not the right crowd. Probably not the right answer for you. But um, if, I, if I did have the right to live my life again, I would have pushed more. Mm. To that's really honest. that's really interesting. Um, do you think that whatever you do end up doing or choose to do, do you think that that's still something that you do have to be passionate about to a degree? I think I think you have to be passionate about the product you're selling, or uh, the company that you work for, the culture. Uh, and uh, you know you've got to stand by your values. So if if it's a uh, good customer service, uh, transparency, you have to stand by that and deliver on that. And I think we need to have passion. Passion is is one of the key uh, ingredients to success. Mm. And either in the acting world, um, the world of film, uh, shall we say, or and, and the business world as well, is there anybody that throughout your life and your career that you've really looked up to and been inspired by yourself? Yes, uh, loads. There's, there's there's too many to name on here. I'll be up talking all day, but Den, Denzel Washington is 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 up there. He's a good, amazing actor, and he's a, he he had a hard time at the beginning, and he just persevered, and he be, he became an A-lister. So, uh, and he's won an Oscar. So, you know, you can't get mm. better than that. And what's incredibly interesting as well is that so many people in the world of film and theatre they do often sort of cross the bridge and also go into business themselves as well, don't they? Yeah, that's true. I mean, absolutely. So a lot of a lot, a lot of them have. They don't just do acting. A lot of people got their own companies and stuff like that. So well, it's, it's it's mixing both. Yeah. So saving so you need you need to have the uh, the the money behind you to actually set up your own company. Uh, so you might have to work for a company and then build up that capital and then invest, or you could be an actor and do a couple of good films and then you've got the money to to, to run your own business. So it's all about money. It's what it comes down to at the end mm. of the day. Not everyone can walk into a bank and come out with a loan. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, so you really give it to. And do you think that 
people who become leaders in their professions do you think that they're just born with a certain ability to do what they do or do you think that it's something that you can learn over time i think it's a combination of both there are natural leaders that will always lead and if they'll, they'll lead they're not just leading in a professional job but they they may be a good leader in other like there's some sort of accident or something on a, on a train or a tube you'll see the leaders that will come forward and and sort of kind of direct people on, on, on the best way to, to get out of that situation. So there are natural leaders, and there, but there are people that can learn how to lead. So you can do both. Mm. It's a bit, a bit of both, really. And just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Mike, just because I'm conscious that we're running short of time, I really would like to talk about the future because over the course of the next few months, we know that we're going to have to continue to adjust to the new normal and COVID-19 restrictions based on the Prime Minister's announcement just last week could well be in place until the end of March um, at the very earliest. Um, As we're continuing to get to grips with this and it's affecting how we live and how we work, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business at Isumo, and where do you see yourselves being this time next year? Well, we see ourselves helping more businesses, uh, you know, to adapt to the new way of working. Uh, there's a lot of IT challenges out there with, the, with these companies. A lot of the equipment is on premise, which means it's in the office, and the office is locked, and they can't get to it, and you don't have a VPN, which is a virtual private network, which is just a way of communicating with their servers. They can't because the office is locked. So they've got challenges of having to move their data from their office and pull it in the cloud or pull it in the data center. And that's what we're looking to help businesses do. And it sounds like there's plenty to be getting on with uh, on that side of things uh, to really help businesses seize um, the opportunities that will be there. Um, I'll certainly be keeping an eye on how things um, are getting on over the course of the uh, the next uh, year in the industry, Mike. And just given how enlightening it's been having you on the programme with us this afternoon, I actually think it would be wonderful to catch up in future and have you back on our show just to see how things are coming along in that respect. Yes, I'd be delighted to, be, to, to attend again and uh, have a chat with you and uh and uh, yeah, to let you know what's happening and what the situation is. Hopefully, we'll be in a better situation. Mm. We'll have a cure. We'll have a vaccine. And uh, we'll, we'll the pubs will be able to open and it's all right with that again. And I thought so the young people could get out and enjoy themselves. Yeah, let's certainly hope we've come a lot further as a country at that point in time. And there's some real positive news to share on how the industry is uh, starting to uh, grow once more. Um, It's been a real pleasure, Micah, welcoming you onto the show today. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime, just because we're not quite out of the woods with this one yet. That's for sure. Well, thank you for having me and uh, keep safe yourself and all of your viewers that were listening to your podcast. Likewise, to all of the viewers out there who are listening to this, please do continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Absolutely. Um, it was a pleasure welcoming Mike Newell onto today's programme, Sales Director at iSumo Limited. Um, next up on the show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for clubs which included West Ham United and Stoke City, among others 
But of course, he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. So Jeff will be looking back at some of the highlights of his career, the importance of leadership throughout, and leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS who have been doing all that they can over the last few months. That is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm. It's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's uh, nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game nearly finished? 
I'm having a wackly sport with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hansfield Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships, but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out, thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And, and so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, it's very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really 
heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about Covington and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alfred Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. 
if you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into the coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes, but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road uh, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the... the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was a, a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to it we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time 
and even today, it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or. Uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire wasn't it yes a lot of people know that I had one game uh, one game the sort of went messing about between the two I had one first class game for Essex as you said Egberth in, um, in Liverpool and I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I saw the couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today, cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 62-63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? 
Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was. Uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls up and not just tipping balls out. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people... Um, Talk about him and who are close to him, who remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player in, but in the squad and Ray Wilson our left back I'd always argue was a world-class player so you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there w- w- not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. Across, but not hit the best because I think he was certain uh, 
slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I'd compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate Hey, at West Ham, it was a great time at the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I, was, I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge, and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contribution to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was that was a good time. Completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month. I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience, and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid. For, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> New kitchen. <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's... I think the that kind of... Uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe uh, maybe longer maybe in longer not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing but in the long term when um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. 
And I think I, I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.